0: So maybe we don't have to be too harsh about the urge to please others. Instead, just say, "Okay, what would be the ideal that would delight them the most?" And then you aim for the ideal. That can be a, a nice like stepping stone to ask, "What would it, you know? What quality could I try bringing to this work that probably would delight them?" Well, then you aim for the quality. The quality is under your control more than the outcome of their being pleased. So you actually are trying to control what you can, which is yourself. And you're doing it in a meaningful way because it's guided by your ideals. Hey, this
1: is Sharif here with another episode of the Golden Hour joined by Dr. Kevin Majors. Kevin, great to be back here with you. Hey, Sharif. Thanks for having me back. Hey, Kevin. Absolutely. Uh, Well, Kevin... We did an episode last week, I think it was, on different parts that can kind of sabotage people in different ways. And one of the parts we talked about was the pleaser, this kind of in, internal drive to maybe please people, uh, and that this can get people into trouble. And I think it struck a chord with a lot with our listeners, you know, and and me, our host as well. Uh, but uh, let me uh, let me read a question. For you and then we can uh, devote this, this episode to that topic.
0: Sounds great. Okay, here it goes.
1: Can you talk more about the people pleaser part and the urge to seek affirmation? I find this can be very strong and I wonder what strategies I can try that are more effective than simply patiently and cheerfully telling myself that no, I don't need their approval and no, I don't have control over people's opinions. And no, they don't have to always be happy with me. So yes, I can simply strive to work and live well without giving undue attention to the people pleaser." Okay, so kind of nice question to the point. So uh, Kevin, ha- let's let's just start with the the this internal part. It's the pleaser. Can you just talk a little bit about what
0: it is that we're talking about here? Yeah, and I think this is, just like we can have an, an inner critic, who is kind of driving us by criticizing what we're doing and trying to, in, in its own way, help what we're doing. We also can have our internal reaction, which is some people experience as a part, that is profoundly, un, like feels um, dissatisfied or ill at ease, if the people around them are not pleased and it's a it can be like a a sense of restlessness or even guilt when when we've displeased someone and so typically this kind of reaction has developed in someone from you know what i'd most associate with would be having adults in their life when they were young who were somewhat unpredictable and that in order to keep the peace in the house they just had to keep everyone pleased so this was a strategy that really made sense at some point in a person's life. And if they were to look at it, they would say, oh, yes, that completely made sense because this is what was going on with my parents or someone else when I was young. And, I, and pleasing people was the way of kind of keeping everything safe. We could say, in using a more cognitive behavioral approach, that it's now become a safety behavior. It's something that people do in order to feel safe but it doesn't actually make them safe. So keeping everyone pleased can be just a way of making sure that there are no brewing threats in the person's life. Uh, and so that's like the more positive maybe interpretation of it. you know. And so like any safety behavior, once you identify that this is a strategy you use to feel safe, you can be more understanding with it. And then you can start to practice freedom. What's it like? to just be aware of the urge to please this person or be aware of the sense of unease, you know, when you've displeased someone and not let it rule your behavior. So that would be the simple kind of approach.
1: Right, okay, so now, yeah, getting into this question of uh, having this thing rule your behavior, I think with the, just to compare a little bit with the inner critic, sometimes people with an inner critic say, hey, this is what Enables me to have a high standard uh, for my work that because I have this inner critic constantly driving me to do well, to do better, to not make any mistakes. This is why you know I don't know I got straight A's in college or whatever, or I got all these promotions. Similarly, maybe with the the people pleaser part, uh, people might associate kind of with what well, we talk about the ideal of service that this is what allows me to put other people first and people are happy because then I can be other focused instead of self-focused. So I wonder if you could maybe distinguish this uh, this please people pleaser part from having a uh, what a genuine spirit of service might look like.
0: Well, I think that's exactly right. But I would even say that it's just as the concern with the inner critic tends to be work, the concern of the pleaser is bonds. So it's looking to see how strong are my bonds, how stable are my bonds. So, And this gets into attachment theory. You know, so people who had a stable pattern of attachment when they were young tend to form more stable bonds when they're older. People who had bonds with unpredictable people, then, or it might just be 25% of us are gonna be like this no matter what, you know, they tend to be more anxious or avoidant in terms of bonds. And so they, bonds make them scared, you know, and so they tend to avoid it. Um, Or when they're in a bond, they get anxious about it not being strong enough. And so they need reassurance. And so they keep on asking for reassurance. Now, what I like about attachment theory is that the literature on it is super positive. Anyone can work on it and come to have a stable attachment style. So you have to be aware of the behaviors you do when your bonds feel threatened or suffocating, you know, and, be, and so if it feels like every bond is suffocating, then you have to learn to like, let yourself get through the discomfort. And then the bond starts to be inherently reinforcing. And that's for the avoidant people. For the anxious people, they have to get through when they start to actually care about someone, they can get worried then about the bond, make sure it's strong. And they have to just be able to tolerate that phase and then it stabilizes. And the more practice they have in different relationships in their life, being able to, I'm not talking like about significant other relationships necessarily. It's more just like even regular friendship and, and you know, business friendships and stuff like that. The more people can tolerate the momentary ups and downs that can happen, you know, then they start to see that the bond is a stable thing and they get more and more secure in it. So the, everyone who works on stabilizing their attachments actually can overcome it. And there's a lot of research that shows that if people have worked on this on their own, they then no longer have the same kind of dominant attachment style after a time. So anyway, so partly this is like attachment theory getting into, and, and so it can be that when people are uncertain and they feel like their bonds are at risk, then they're especially eager to please others. A whole nother paradigm though for viewing it is that you could just say for whatever reason, um, they have gotten a little bit addicted to pleasing others. And the addiction paradigm also works really well with this need to please, that we crave pleasing others sometimes. And it can be when you get then the signal from someone that you really like, they're really wowed, they're really impressed, they're really, they're really, it can be, a, it can feel like a, a temporary high that the person gets like, wow, that was really gratifying. Um, And there too, the more unpredictable it is, the more addictive it is. Because we know from behavioral research that intermittent reinforcers, intermittent rewards that are a little bit unpredictable, not constant, those are the ones that then produce in us the greatest cravings. And that can happen that we got uh, into a habit of like looking for pleasing others and then we sometimes get it and it's really gratifying. So that's why you can sometimes see this just some people who are very successful, that they have exceeded expectations so often and gotten this response, that they now get, they're a little bit addicted to it. So h- how would I know? What
1: would be the signs that I'm striving to please people rather than to have this genuine spirit of service?
0: Mm-hmm. Maybe the dominant feeling... Um, you know, that would, that would come from this would be uh, that you're aware of often being in threat mode, a feeling like you're on the verge of disappointing people always. And so it feels like interactions are threatening, even though there's no real reason they should be. And so like, what are we like when we're in threat mode? You know, threat mode is this state where we are hyper vigilant for threats, but there's no actual threat sounding our alarm right now. And it's the very hypervigilance that wears on us. So it can be then that one, I think the first sign of threat mode is chronic tension because our muscles are held in a state of readiness to be ready to respond. And so we just stay tense. And um, you know, another is it can feel like uh, there's just too much thoughts are going on in our head. So that we're getting bombarded with thoughts or even have racing thoughts. And In general, that we tend to find ourselves feeling rushed like we're just always rushing through things, trying to get to the next thing. And we have to look and see like, well, well, then why am I rushing around so much? Why do I always feel stressed? So if you're chronically in threat mode, it's really important to figure out, is this anything real? Like, have I created obligations for myself that don't really exist? And pleasing others is one of the most, um, like one of the most impossible obligations we set for ourselves. Because you literally cannot always please everyone, so you get caught in that. It's so tantalizing.
1: Yeah. Now, I'm not sure if this is an important distinction to make, but uh, you mentioned it earlier that sometimes the the people pleaser approach can kind of ar- arise if there's a history of conflict, and so you're trying to avoid conflict and. Um, so the, the people pleaser could come from a desire to please other people. That would be the, the kind of straightforward thing. So there's a kind of positive reinforcer that when people praise you or they say, oh, thank you, you did such a good job, that that's, that, that drives you to please them more because that's a nice feeling to have the, the sense that, hey, I did something good. Um, on the other hand, it could be more of a conflict avoidance type. And like when you do a good job, it's crisis averted. So do you have a sense that this is more about avoiding a negative or seeking a positive? And does that even matter?
0: Are there always those two dimensions? I think it doesn't matter. I think in the end, it's the same. Because if it's the positive, it's still then every, it's still going to produce then a kind, like every addiction is actually a phobia of a craving. And so you don't want to feel the craving. And so you do the addiction. So, and if you're addicted to pleasing others, you know, then you are gonna be in fear of it. So, so yes, you enjoy what you get, but then also you're gonna fear not getting it. Uh, so I, I think that, um, yeah, you mentioned praise. Uh, I think in general, CBT uh, sees praise as manipulative. That you have to be very careful in praising others because... It can be a way you almost get the other person addicted to pleasing you. So, especially if you have like this over the top unexpected praise. So, it's kind of unexpected, but then it's really intense. Um, And especially if it's general. So, instead of saying that, you know, the way you summarized, you know, the the earnings in that report was really masterful, which is something really, it'd be like, wow, you're so bright, you're so intelligent, this global praise, you know. But that actually then is generally, I think we should be, like, I don't know, we should, uh, it's un, is it be an unusual circumstance to just give someone that kind of praise? I think it's, uh, so... Praise in CBT is generally seen, like I think that it'd be like the therapist shouldn't generally just praise the person in a kind of global way because that would make the person too dependent then on future praise from from the therapist. I think parents have to be careful not overpraising their children. You know, it's great that you they know you love them and you can, when they do a particularly good job on something particular, then you can praise the effort they put into it. Uh, but I wouldn't just praise their like inherent qualities, because uh, then they get afraid of somehow losing that. This gets into Carol Dweck and the and the, the effect of praise on children. That's an interesting topic, but I'm not sure you wanted to go that direction. Right, right. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember saying that to praise the the process and the effort put in rather than the outcome achieved um, in terms of the growth. Yes, and appreciating a
0: really well done job on something is always good. I think that to give people feedback when they did a good job on something is helpful, but you just don't wanna turn into like a global thing because then you start to suspect like, yeah. It's just like giving people reassurance. Some people have a very uh, a way of reassuring everyone around them, but that can create a neediness for reassurance in the people around them. So I think we have to be careful about just being an endless uh, supplier or dealer of reassurance and then create dependence uh, on, on, on the people around us. It's better sometimes, especially with children, that they not be reassured, but that you let them know um, that you are sure that they'll get through this and that uh, you understand that the anxiety is is a challenge right now, but you don't need to reassure them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh
1: to, shifting the discussion a little bit, we, um, in considering this idea that being a people pleaser, being a pleaser is kind of like uh, imitating having a spirit of service in some way. We often talk about uh, that these good qualities or characteristics have kind of bad doppelgangers say. So in this uh, like sometimes we talk about flow and the doppelganger is hyper focused. Uh, So I think you've called these pseudo ideals that when they kind of have the appearance of something good to strive for and they have some good elements to them, but they don't, they're not quite worthy of our striving
0: after them. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit yeah. about that. I'm glad you bring it to that because that's actually, so yeah, on the one hand, you could say that um, pleasing other people can be like a drug addiction so that you and you, you need more and more of it. The worst though, uh, and, and the, the worst aspect of it is actually that it serves as a pseudo ideal or even an anti-ideal uh, because uh, and the one, it's like a proxy for real ideals. So when you're just focused on pleasing other people, you're not actually thinking about what is good. What would be the best way of doing this? You're just thinking of what would please them. Like what way of doing this would please them? Well, that. Could, so if you're trying to please a person who is morally perfect, who is the epitome of uprightness, then. Just doing everything to please them would probably be a good, pretty good proxy. <laughs> so yeah, you kind of you trust. In a way, that's what children are like with their parents, you know. And so the, you know, the, the pleasing your parents when you're very young is a pretty good proxy for doing what's reasonable and good. And so if you want to do what's reasonable and good, then okay, I'm just going to aim at pleasing the parents, and I think that works, especially until you know the age of reason or so. So you know, once, eventually, people have to see the good on their own. You know, but initially, yeah, so you have this proxy. But for adults to do that, that can be then the source of endless woe. The evil that you see in human history, how much of it was done by people trying to please others? It has to be a huge amount of it. That making pleasing others your standard of what to do, you know, could be destructive of every other ideal. Because then you're not doing things because of a sense of sincerity and you know, generosity and, and a spirit of service, you know, being magnanimous, um, you know, working in a beautiful way with order, intensity, and constancy. You're not trying to do any of these things that we call ideals, um, being cheerful, being grateful, all these, all these qualities that are beautiful. So instead, then you've replaced all ideals with just pleasing someone. Well, that would be a real tyranny you know, and so to make an idol out of someone's praise or out of uh, pleasing them, uh, I think could be, could be very dangerous. Another thing that's really dangerous about these pseudo-ideals, uh, and i say pleasing people is probably one of the most potent of them. But in general, money, success, good looks, ever-improving fitness, there's a lot of things that could be pseudo-ideals. Uh, the, um, but where they differ from ideals is that, one, they're attainable. You can actually please a given person in a given moment. You know, there there probably is a way to do that. Uh, at least they're sometimes attainable. At least they're intermittently attainable. But real ideals are not attainable in that way. They're inexhaustible. So real ideals allow for constant growth. You know, you are never done growing when you're trying to be more generous and you're trying to be more wise well, you are always then on a, on a path of growth. So this idea that like the pseudo ideals are actually attainable is a sign that they're not real ideals. Because once you've attained pleasing the person, well then what? Now you just have to keep doing it forever. So, so that'd be like a slavery. Um, and another thing then, which is even even in a sense, makes it even worse is that they're not under your control. You don't have perfect control over pleasing others because you can't control what other people think. Just like you don't have perfect control over how much money you have, the job you have, the looks, the intelligence, the fitness level, you don't actually in this moment have perfect control over any of those. Things outside of your control can take them away from you. Unlike real ideals. Real ideals are the only thing that can be the goal of every action in a way that ennobles the action and makes you more resilient and happier. And the more you practice them, the more resilient and happy you get and the more noble your actions get. Well, that that's an incredibly um, powerful reality. So I think these pseudo-ideals are dangerous because they stop us from pursuing the real thing.
1: Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, that's. I think that's a very helpful distinction. So it's good to lay, I, I especially like the last point that uh, ideals... Uh, are are under control. It's under your control whether you act according to them, whereas the pseudo ideals are you're just at the other person's whims or at the whims of some external circumstances. Um, I wonder if you could uh, finish by shedding light on how practically, okay, if I've identified, hey, there's this relationship at work where I have this boss and I'm always trying to please them. And okay, now looking back at being sincere with myself, I can see that that actually is a big motivator for me. Uh, w- what should I do about that? Should I go the other direction and mm-hmm. try to turn in terrible work so that they get really mad at me and help <laughs> to you know, detach myself from their, their praise? Or, or what, what,
0: what would you advise people to do when the, if they're in this situation? Well, imagine as a thought experiment that you do that and you deliberately try to displease the person. Okay, then how would that make you feel? (laughs) Yeah, and so what would acceptance of feeling bad be like? What would you do? You physically feel it. Yeah, so, uh, so, The purpose of exposure exercises, and this would be a kind of exposure, is not to make you immune to the emotion that you're avoiding. The purpose of exposure is to get you better at having it and being okay with it. Basically get you better at welcoming it. And the essence of welcoming a negative emotion is simply feeling it physically. So you deliberately find the signal in your body of what that emotion feels like. Generally, you're gonna feel it in the chest. But sometimes you feel it in the throat, sometimes you feel it in the stomach, but you wanna feel it somewhere torso, kind of in the torso region. And you simply open up and welcome the sensation. So to get good at doing that would be a fantastic skill for these people to have, you know, that to break the fear they have of not pleasing others okay but we wouldn't obviously you know we wouldn't want people getting fired so that it's great to um savor the practice in little moments if you happen to not please someone or actually displease them and just to like let yourself be okay with that do the same exact exercise as if it were an exposure feel in your body especially in your chest the sensation of the emotion of what, it, what it's like it feels bad but it's not painful. So these emotions are not like breaking your leg or a kidney stone or a childbirth. They're uncomfortable and that's it. And the better you get at being comfortable with them, the more then you can accept them and welcome them. And then they stop affecting your behavior. You start to realize Look, it's not so bad. Learning to be a little bit disagreeable is like a little bit of an exposure. You don't have to go total disagreeable so that you actually make the person dislike you, but just to be a little bit disagreeable, like not to give in right away. And just experiment with not being the first to give in. Sometimes people are pleasers of others, uh, have a habit of over apologizing for things. So just catching yourself when you feel the need to apologize and waiting. If there's a real duty to apologize, that duty won't go anywhere. So, and you can apologize the next day, but like give yourself some time to be able to welcome this urge to apologize. You know, and just okay, I'm just going to let myself feel this. You don't have to somehow um do, you know, extinguish every little spark of conflict. Let them go away on their own. They just in the background and the relationship will pick right back up and you'll realize that you can have some turbulence and it's okay. You know, and you can still show that you care about the person and that's actually more important than Somehow making sure they're not still mad at you for this thing from two days ago, or sometimes it's like no, just let it go, and then gradually you'll just you'll trust the bond and you'll feel the bond. So, hope I'm not you know going off too far here, but I think that you can actually also use this urge to please others precisely to get in touch with real ideals. Maybe that's the highest use of it. So maybe we don't have to be too harsh about the urge to please others. Instead, just say, "Okay, what would be the ideal that would delight them the most?" And then you aim for the ideal. That can be a, a nice like stepping stone to ask, "What would it, you know? What quality could I try bringing to this work that probably would delight them?" Well, then you aim for the quality. The quality is under your control more than the outcome of their being pleased. So you actually are trying to control what you can which is yourself, and you're doing it in a meaningful way because it's guided by your ideals. So that would be a win-win then. So, and if you can just use it, every time you feel the urge to please someone, to use it as a chance to locate the ideal, gradually I think you'll see that you're okay with there being a little bit of turbulence and pain as long as you're aiming for the ideal.
1: Mm-hmm. Wonderful, Kevin. Well, I think that's a very nice practical note for us to end on here. Great,
0: all right, Steve. thanks for your questions. And thanks to the listener who sent us a question. So they can always send those to, um, what, info at optimumwork.com.
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, send them them along. Great. All right. Well, Kevin, we'll be back next week. See you then.